This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Steve Richards. Steve Richards is the author of two books on leadership. First, Modern Prime Minister's Reflections on Leadership from Wilson to Johnson. And his latest book is called The Prime Ministers We Never Had, Success and Failure from Butler to Corbyn, which has just been published. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. Thank you very much, Paul. Right. My first question, actually, did these uh, 11... Uh, profiles that you, you've chosen to write about in your new book, did they kind of self-select or was it quite difficult to make a, a selection and pare it down to just 11? No, it was very straightforward because I applied strict criteria. A game that is often played is who are the best prime ministers we never had? But that didn't interest me at all because it's deeply subjective and self-indulgent. You know, uh, it's like saying, you know, oh, in your view, what, which are the best 10 albums not to have made it to number one? Right. So uh, I applied a very different approach, which was to explore why those who were seen as a possible prime minister, and in some cases possible a next prime minister, and crucially, had a feasible opportunity to seize the crown, why they failed to do so. Because it's an under-explorer, it's not explored at all question. Um, but and, and that made it very straightforward, beginning with Rab Butler, who he was, you know, whenever he's mentioned, he was, ah, Rab Butler, you know, the prime minister we never had, of course, or they all say the best prime minister we never had, and uh, who had three opportunities to seize the crown. And ends with Jeremy Corbyn, who after the May 2017 election, when Labour wiped out the Conservatives' majority, there were many people who thought he could well, one way or another, become Prime Minister that autumn um, in that sort of Theresa May trauma. And then he crashed to the 2019 defeat. So those are the two criteria applied. But to be clear, there are, are, am I right in saying there are kind of two categories of, of, of candidates of why they did not succeed? Those who fought and lost leaderships, leadership elections, challenging the, the, the leader of the party that they normally the prime minister on the one hand, and on the other hand, leaders of the opposition who did not win the general election when they were leader of the opposition. Yeah, and there's, there's a third category as well. You're absolutely right that, you know, so Neil Kinnock is in there and Ed Miliband are in there because uh, they passed one of the barriers. They became leader of the opposition. Um, they all fell, as Labour leaders usually do, at the second barrier in that they lost general elections. Um, you're right about uh, the other. There is a third. So the second is standing in a leadership contest, fairly fundamental category. And the third is um, those who um, didn't even do that, but were seen for a long time as someone about to topple a prime minister or would succeed that prime minister at some point. One of the interesting things is quite a few of the prime ministers we never had in the book were burdened by the perception of burning, seething ambition 
to be prime minister. And yet when you look at their careers, they quite often only stood in one leadership contest. Mm -hmm. Esseltine in 1990, Portillo in 2001. Um, so they might have been burdened by a perception of ambition, but they didn't execute that uh, kind of hunger uh, more than once in their entire careers. Do you know yeah. why people like Portillo and uh, and Heseltine only only fought one leadership election? Yeah, there is a twist to all of this, which is that although we in the media in the UK uh, talk all the time about a fragile prime minister about to be toppled and speculate about who will be the person to succeed, uh, the space for this to happen rarely arises. When you think about it, you've got two choices if you're in a governing party. Uh, one is that you knife, metaphorically speaking, a prime minister. And the only person to try that is Michael Heseltine in challenging Thatcher. And he lost. The other option is you wait for the prime minister to go and prime ministers hang on. That's um, something that I think we all in the media need to learn, that on the whole, they cling on. Only Harold Wilson voluntarily uh, resigned in a planned way. Um, the others were forced out through one means or another. So it just doesn't come up that often, the opportunity to challenge, if you like, in inverted commas, legitimately. What is striking is also, I mean, we tend to forget, but how on the Conservative Party side, uh, the, the question of Europe uh, keeps coming back as a, as a, as a obviously a dividing line between Eurosceptics and pro-Europeans in the Conservative Party, and how potential leaders were, candidates were judged by their zealousness, their dedication to the European cause. Yeah. And, and they were obviously, you know, they had supporters or enemies almost on the basis of their, of their position on Europe. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I mean, this is unique to British politics, that Europe has blocked some very big figures from getting to the top. It began on the Labour side uh, with Roy Jenkins, who was widely seen as a likely prime minister. He was deputy uh, leader of the Labour Party when Harold Wilson was the leader. Um, and he, he was, as you know, a passionate pro-European at a point when the Labour Party or a majority of its uh, members and MPs were opposed to Britain's membership. And that divide meant it was impossible for Jenkins to become leader at any point. He did stand in one leadership contest uh, when Wilson went in 1976 and performed poorly. Uh, and then you have to switch to the Tories in this never-ending dance over Europe in British politics. And most famously, Ken Clark was, uh, you know, after the 97 slaughter uh, for the Conservatives, so Ken Clark, you know, has joked that his hobby was fighting and losing leadership elections. And in each one he fought, uh, he fought three, I think. Uh, yeah, he did, three elections. Uh, polls suggested he was by far the most popular uh, with the wider electorate of all the candidates standing. But he didn't stand a chance because of his unyielding passion for Britain's membership of the European Union. Uh, oddly, Clark, in spite of this sort of exuberant, centrist political reputation, he would have fitted the modern Tory party like a glove in other respects. He was a Thatcherite on economic policies. In fact, he supported Britain's membership of the European Union, partly on Thatcherite grounds. And he believed in public service reform in, in the way that Thatcher did. 
But on Europe, he was at odds with his party and it became the biggest issue. So he too was blocked. Um, and so, yeah, if you can't dance at one with your party, you are finished, however big you are, because Britain doesn't have a presidential system. Uh, and so you get a, a match in 2019 with Boris Johnson and his party over, again, Europe and Johnson's affectation of being a passionate supporter of a hard Brexit. Um, so, you know, there were other candidates in that election who would have been better prime ministers. But if you can't dance with your party, you will become a prime minister we never had. When you make the point, and the, and again, when it's, it's surprising, but then not really when you think about it, that since the 1997 election, you say when the Conservative Party was trounced by that sweeping Blair victory, that the Conservative Party has been led by, you know, lukewarm Eurosceptic uh, politicians, right, throughout in the last 24 years. Yeah. It, 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 you, you would not win a leadership contest in the Conservative Party without... Uh, being at least lukewarm over Europe. It's forgotten um, that David Cameron, while pretending to be this great modernizing centrist, took a much more hardline approach on Europe in the Tory leadership contest in uh, 2005 than his main opponent, David Davis, uh, even though David Davis ended up being a Brexiteer. So, you know, this is what has defined one Tory leader after another and has blocked some potential prime ministers from uh, getting to the top. Well, you say you avoided the, the, the trap of going down the, counter, the counterfactual route, but you do clearly have a certain kind of, shall I call it a soft spot for Michael Heseltine uh, in terms of what he might have achieved and, and uh, certainly inside the Conservative Party if he'd won that leadership battle back in, in 1990. Can you maybe explain to the listeners why you're you have such strong views about the the impact, the influence he would have had if he'd been, been successful. I will, but first I'll say, you know, I don't like these counterfactuals because they're pointless. Because yeah. you, you know, you, it could well have been that if Neil Kinnock had won in 1992, he might well have changed Britain and Britain's relation with Europe as well. Um, it, but we just don't know because it would have been a hung parliament, probably, uh, as with. If Ed Miliband had become prime minister, it would be in a hung parliament. Same with Jeremy Corbyn, if he had ever got it. I mean, it could be chaos or it could have been an impressive, radical revitalization of Britain. We just don't know. But with Heseltine, if he had won in 1990, given that he was a better campaigner than John Major, I think he would have won by a bigger margin in the general election in 1992. And this was at a junction when the Tory party had not become hardline Brexiteers. There was no call in the parliamentary party uh, between 1990 and actually 1997 for Britain to leave. So there was space for an election winning pro-European prime minister to remould the party in that period. And Heseltine would have had no choice but to do it because like Ken Clark, this was something he was not going to become soft on. Uh, and we've seen that throughout what's happened since with Heseltine. So I think he, if you think that Brexit is a direct result of the Conservative Party becoming uh, increasingly Eurosceptic, if he had won in November 1990, that would not have happened. It might have been one hell of a battle, 
Uh, but I think he was then in a position, and there was a fluidity within the Tory party still at that point over Europe. Um, that could well have changed the course of British history, um, but it didn't happen. Uh, that's the only one I kind of dare to reflect on a bit. Okay. As a general, <laughs> as a general point, what, what strikes me is that uh, now, but it was, it was ever thus, one could argue, that um, politicians on, on the, you know, the front rank uh, all believe that they, they could or should be prime minister. And I just wonder, in your judgment, uh, whether they actually is realistic or not is slightly a, a side issue. In your judgment, what impact does that kind of constant, you know, uh, fretting about getting the top job impact the, the, the guy or the woman actually occupying the top job? One, I ask the question because one hears a lot about Boris Johnson being this clever buffoon, if that's not a contradiction in terms. But what one also hears that he's very insecure. He's always looking over his shoulder about who's, uh, who's going to try and take his job. Do you think, yeah. do you think that's a, a, a given with any top job that you're, you're constantly uh, concerned about who's going to try and, as you say, knife you in the back or whatever and take over? Yeah, I do in British politics. Um, it is a constant theme. Uh, people used to say about Harold Wilson, he was paranoid, but he had a lot to be paranoid about. There were big figures around him who wanted his job. And at the moment in the Conservative Party, there are, I wouldn't call them big figures, but there are figures who want uh, Boris Johnson's job. He's by no means alone in feeling insecure. Uh, but it's a sort of double-edged sword because it also, I think, is one of the reasons the prime ministers we never had did not become prime minister. They are perceived as so ambitious um, that everything they do is seen through that prism and it ultimately undermines them. There was a period when Gordon Brown was prime minister that if David Miliband crossed a road, it would be seen as a sort of an attempt at leadership, when quite often, you know, David Miliband, he, he, he was an intelligent, reflective figure, um, and indeed was a bit indecisive about leadership, as we know. And so uh, I think it can undermine them. With Michael Portillo, there was a frenzy around Michael Portillo in the mid-90s. Uh, as you suggested, it, it drove John Major paranoid and neurotic. Um, but I think it also, in the end, undermined Portillo. There was too much excitement. And if you actually look at those who get the prime ministership, there isn't frenzy around them uh, as they rise to the very top. Well, I suppose that you could argue that being, again, without being too cynical, that um, politicians don't need any help in, in sort of burnishing their egos, insatiable egos for higher office. But, to what, but that, some, to be fair, they are maybe put in this position by the media. And since you are also a, a major media figure, not just a, a writer, Steve, I just wondered to what extent the, the media has a, a, not a blame to be attributed, but the role, to, yeah, they, they play a role in, in beefing up possible candidates, no? For yeah, yeah, no question, no question. Two things happen. One, uh, their colleagues uh, tell them, you know, you, you look, X is a disaster as prime minister, only you can, save us. <laughs> and this is a deeply flattering thing to be told. And most of the prime ministers we never had, had conversations with colleagues like that. Then the colleagues tell political columnists, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I think you'll find David Miliband will challenge Gordon Brown. And that's the only way Labour can win. And, and a column is written saying Miliband could save the Labour Party and the United Kingdom. And he reads it, David, uh, at that point, oh wow, you know, and it it it, it becomes intoxicating, 
but quite dangerous for the subject of these pieces. So it's both political journalists and allies of the figure. Uh, as say Michael Portillo had had worshippers for a time who fed this idea, uh, you know, including Margaret Thatcher, you know, Michael is the future, she used to say to John Major's fury. And of course, it went to his head, then he lost his seat. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's political journalists and politicians combining to create this sense of a moment that actually very rarely comes in British politics. And do you have any sense, because you, you know a lot of these people personally, and, and in your radio pro programmes, you've, you've interviewed, uh, I think, all these people, frankly, and maybe not Ralph Butler, but maybe no. there's many in your Yeah, you, you're right. I've interviewed, um, I hasten to add, when a lot of them were very old. I mean, Barbara Carson was 90 when I interviewed her, but I've, I, have, I know well the more recent ones, yeah. and I've interviewed all of them but Ralph Butler. <laughs> Did you, did you ever get a sense from that, these people, how they felt once they've tried and failed? So as you said before, you know, some people just tried once and stood, and stood, stood down, others like Ken Clark kept trying and trying. Did you get a sense when you were talking to these individuals, how they came to terms with their ultimate defeat? Did they kind of, were they quite, not so much gracious about it, but did they actually accept the, um, the, the, the outcome with certain serenity? A really interesting question. And it partly depends the nature of their failure. So the Labour leaders of the opposition, well, Neil Kinnock and Ed Miliband, both of whom were expected to become Prime Minister, Kinnock after the 92 election, Ed Miliband after the 2010, I think still to this very day suffer a deep sense of rejection and torment. Um, Jeremy Corbyn, probably relief on one level. Um, others, I, yeah, I still think they, not, not all of them, but I think, you know, I didn't know him, but Rab Butler uh, reflected often at the three moments he might have got it and why not. Michael Heseltine, uh, yeah, I think he has often reflected on getting so close but not to the top and, and it, it, it's a sort of tormented uh, sequence of thoughts. So, yeah, I think they remain troubled on the whole, not all 11 on the list. I mean, David Miliband is still tormented by what happened. Um, others much less so. Right, to, to finish off this chat, maybe if I could ask you a couple of questions to finish off, uh, Steve, about basically more about your, your, your other book about the prime ministers themselves, if you don't mind. Could, one reason, because yeah. it's quite topical at the moment when you see these interventions on whatever issue, Afghanistan, the pandemic, former prime ministers, um, Theresa May, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, even John Major, having up and saying quite wise things. And all of a sudden people are saying, goodness me, we had no idea how good they were. Maybe <laughs> they should come back to frontline politics. Do you have any sense that any of these individuals harbour any kind of ambition to do that? Or are they quite happy, you know, building a new life outside frontline politics? Uh, well, each are different. I mean, John Major was wholly content, I think, that the day he was slaughtered in 1997 to go off and watch the cricket mm -hmm. and then gradually become, you know, sort of rehabilitated, really. Uh, so you're right, when he speaks now, it's with authority. Um, Tony Blair, I've got no doubt at all, if there was a route back to number 10, he would move along that route speedily um, and his friend Andrew Adonis is tweeting all the time that Tony Blair should be Labour leader. That's, that's, uh, not, that's, that's not going to happen right? There's no way any of these are going to 
uh, return. Theresa May, to her great credit, has remained in the House of Commons rather than follow this trend to rush off. So she has a base um, and the others shouldn't have rushed off the moment all ambition was spent. Um, and I think you, those are the three you're referring to. I think yeah. people are not turning to David Cameron for authoritative comment at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Gordon Brown, of course. Gordon Brown, yes. Yeah, too, yeah. is a, a, an authority. And, but, 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 but it's very interesting. What happens is, while they're in office, a lot of the time, they are bashed around by the media. And, you know, they're liars, they're mad, they're war criminals. But when they leave, people say, oh, yeah. They're great. You know, it's a very odd, it's not odd, actually. It shows, I'm afraid, a kind of cynicism about British politics that you have to leave to be liked. Look at Ed Balls, you know, yes, now yes. Sort of National adored as, because he danced on a Saturday night badly um, and, and was kind of viewed with disdain when he was a cabinet minister. That, that's the way it goes. Okay, well, a final question, which kind of straddles your two books, but it, and it can also be kind of a counter-counterfactual, that word you hate, um, which, is, which is this. Those who, who did succeed to become prime minister, uh, who were always, had always seen not just self-styled, but by many other people as the heir apparent, uh, but then weren't particularly good one, once they got to 10 Downing Street. I'm thinking, obviously, of Anthony Eden, uh, James Gahan, maybe even Gordon Brand, if that doesn't offend the listeners too much. They've been, they've been eyeing this top job for so long, and once they finally got there, the, their record in office was you know, not so good. Is that a fair comment, or that widely unfair? Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's complicated. So, for example, uh, Gordon Brown, you know, in retrospect, I mean, he was being slaughtered at the time, but his response to the 2008 financial crash is now widely recognised as being substantial. So it's a bit more nuanced than that. But I think what happens is those prime ministers who wait and wait and wait for the vacancy to arise, um, they are pretty exhausted by the time they get it. Uh, that's certainly the case with Eden and Brown. You know, Eden was waiting and waiting for Churchill to, to go and Brown with Blair, that they don't have that fresh sense of energy and they've been on the political stage for so long that it's quite hard to get that oomph, which is uh, needed, really. Um, so, yeah, that is uh, an issue for those who have to wait too long. Um, it's then, you know, they've been around, they then have to lead their party into an election. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, in the case of Callaghan and Brown, they both lost in different ways. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Great chat. Um, Steve Richards, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.